Some people may find topics discussed in this episode difficult. Please proceed with caution. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 42 of The Frankie Files. It's Second Tuesday, and that means the topic is sexuality. Of course, related to cults. Our guest today is Ruan Mipagala, who will let us know about his time immersed in a sexual wellness company birthed out of the depths of San Francisco, California, circa 2005. Enlightenment through 15-minute orgasms. The founder, Nicole Dedone, claimed, My guests and I agree on one thing. Healthy approaches to sex are needed in society. Nicole has since sold her stake in One Taste during 2017, but is still involved. There was recently a documentary on Netflix called Orgasm Inc. Check it out. Let's welcome our guest, and I hope everyone enjoys this conversation. sexuality and society. These are the topics for the Frankie Files. I'm Frankie Tease, your host, and I'll continue to focus on my own family story as well as news and recovery info for those who've survived, especially the adult children of cults. New each Tuesday. See FrankieFilesPodcast.com for more. First, it's my pleasure today to have you with us. Thank you for being here, Ruan. For sure. Thanks for having me. I want to start with your podcast because you've got your own podcast. It's called Rwando. And uh, where is where can we hear it? What's your podcast about? Why did you start it? And how long have you been doing that? Yeah, well, the tagline is psychology for men with brains and balls, although <laughs> about a third of our viewers are, or listeners are women. Um, yeah. I basically cover things that are interesting to me that I think are useful to men, um, relationship stuff, um, reality things, sometimes a little bit of overlap with my cult story. I've told my cult story on the podcast. You know, I think how people perceive reality is very interesting to me. And obviously my first dunk into that, or my first immersion in that was in the cult. Yeah. And, and my podcast is on all the apps, Spotify, Apple, Substack. Okay, well, what type of media production um, have you been involved in? You have been in the documentary on Netflix that I watched to prepare, Orgasm, Inc. Uh, What other type of projects have you been involved in? Well, I I, I mean, I've appeared in various stories regarding One Taste. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, I think part of it was that I wasn't so ashamed compared to some people who left. And then I also felt I really want to tell the story, not to throw shade or anything, although there's dark things in the story, obviously. But Mm -hmm. I just think it's like an interesting story about human behavior, as many cult stories are. Um, Other than that, I I mean, I've been in a lot of things. I used to host a dating show. Uh, I used to dabbled in acting and I did improv for quite a while. Uh, maybe I'll get into voiceover for uh, a good suggestion from someone I got recently. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I'm a cult survivor too. So when I watched this documentary and read some more articles that you had um, discussed it in, you have my full attention. We need to look at these things and they're very interesting dynamics. And so I'm really anxious to dig into this. Let's talk about one taste. It was a business structure, not just a cult that is a group of people living on property, but a business that had multiple locations uh, with a patented technique under wellness. They're being invested in by Silicon Valley venture capitalists, serious money flow happening there. Give us an overview uh, before we touch on the Mad Hatter part, <laughs> if you don't mind. Yeah, so uh, One Taste is slash was a health and wellness company. At least that was their business storefront. Um, when I left in 2014, they were listed in a bunch of Inc. magazine uh, lists, like I think the top 10 of female-owned companies, top 10 health and wellness, uh, one of the fastest growing companies. Um, and they taught a, a technique called orgasmic meditation, which had roots in other techniques from other sexuality groups that came before them, where a man stroked a woman's clitoris in a prescribed fashion to generate sensations in both of their bodies. And it was treated like a meditation. It was treated more spiritually than sexually. I know that sounds strange because we're talking about genitals, but um, that was kind of the the main thing that... Uh, the whole community organized around and all of their classes were around teaching people essentially to feel more. Right. And I remember um, viewing the TED Talk, Nicole DeJone, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, did. Mm -hmm. And she presented this concept pretty much scientifically and unabashedly, I might add. The mixed feelings I have listening to this, sadly, it went too far, but also, yeah, we are neglected and getting more as humans because technology is entering our lives more and more and we're more separate. And this is an interesting idea for that reason. Now, as emotionally and spiritually and sexually charged environment and was encouraged to be so, you kind of like laid out what the concept is, but let's get into your personal timeline. Yeah, I saw the TED Talk uh, when it came out in 2007. I was uh, 19. I was in college. I watched a lot of TED Talks because I was and still am very into self-development. And it really touched me. I mean, I don't know what you thought when you when you watched it. I mean, it's different watching it, knowing the context and seeing having seen the, the Netflix talk. But it, it was moving to me, like the, the idea of like real connection, obviously, the sexuality piece was intriguing. That was maybe the hook, but like really, got, or that was the, yeah, that was the initial uh, intrigue. But the thing that really got me was this idea of like real intimacy and real connection with people, which I hadn't really thought about as a 19 year old man, mm -hmm. but it was something that I felt I recognized I was lacking. So fast forward a couple of years, I'm, I'm living in Manhattan. Uh, still a big self-development nerd. So when like Tim Ferriss had his second book come out that summer um, called The 4-Hour Body, and there was a, the chapter about sex was written with One Taste. It was about the One Taste orgasmic meditation technique. So, and so basically I was like, okay, this thing has popped up again. I need to check them out. Two months later, they show up in New York, setting up a New York branch. So of course I attended. And uh, yeah, that was how I that's how I ended up. It actually felt very serendipitous and like things were aligning for me to do this uh, for, for years, basically. That. Your question was, what did I think watching it? Oh, wow. Like I said, I have mixed feelings because I think she's onto something. That's the real initial reaction. It's like um, the concept that uh, women, okay, she's focusing on women. Women are starved of uh, 
contact, let's just go there. Not just sex, but like sensual contact. If you go to Hinduism, that aligns, which, you know, the cult I was in did a, quite a lot of talking and studying about. So, yeah, so uh, trauma in the body, uh, locked into certain areas, etc. I can see some of that, and it was very intriguing. So I'm not hypercritical only. You know, I am critical because I do think it did go wrong at some point. We'll get into this. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. So your story arc, what year did you go? was late 2012, a little more than two years. It's not that you were just a member. You first went to an event and, and then volunteered and became an employee. Is that correct? Yeah, well, there was a few phases in between. Like I went to their intro events, which was, as most self-development companies, um, in introduction to what they can do for you is also a bit of a sales event. It was a sales event, I should say. Um, then you go to their full day class to learn orgasmic meditation, which is like the thing that everyone in the community did. And then you're part of this community. And for me, being kind of emotionally closed off, living in New York, I was 23, 24. It's almost like I was part of a secret society now that was that where everyone was emotionally vulnerable and really good at communicating and you know sexually free. So of course it was it just seemed cool. It was like I discovered this cool world. Over time, I spent more and more time there. And I eventually moved into their house um, in Harlem. Every major one-taste city, where, they, where there was a one-taste community and presence, had an, what was called an orgasm residence, which was kind of like an ashram, but where the focus was orgasmic meditation. So I moved into there a few months later, uh, early 2013. And maybe three or four months after living there, I became an employee of the company. At what point were you hands-on in that process? Uh, from the class. I mean, you go to the class, you learn how to do this practice. It's kind of like an initiation in the sense of now you're in the community and in the class, you have an opportunity to uh, stroke or be stroked, depending on your anatomy. Okay. And, and it focused on women as the stroke. Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's probably what was pretty disarming to a lot of people because it's like, well, good. Yeah. And, you know, part of it, I mean... On like a cultural end, I guess you say, or, or values end. You know, it, they never they they were very pro feminist, obviously, with this female focus, and I think that was appealing to a certain kind of you know progressive person, both men and women. Right, and business owners as well. To boot, the the marketing side of that is when you really focus on women and you have a lot of attractive women in a community, you get men to show up as well. The dynamic of having a woman on stage, which to me is like a live sex show. The ideology was next, which was initially Buddhist. I could see, you know, she even, one taste is a derivative of a quote from Buddha. And then Hinduism, I saw New Age religion, which often involves Jesus and rituals and initiations. Okay, so the power of controlling someone's sexuality. What was it like? So you, was it a transcendent experience? Did you like go out of your body? Like I'm not physically turned on, but I'm kind of spiritually turned on? No, I mean, honestly, the I really was intrigued by the emotional vulnerability of this group because I hadn't, it was new to me. The, 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 the actual own practice, I didn't get it, actually. I didn't get how these women were having these like, like really profound looking experiences from just stroking their clitoris. I, I just didn't get it. And I was, um, actually, it was one of their kind of indoctrination techniques uh, was that 
during the live demonstration, which would happen in the class, for mine, Nicole was stroking another woman, so which is kind, of, which is a shock for most people, right? Like a, a a woman naked from the waist down, and she's being stroked and entering a state of orgasm in the middle of you know, like on a Saturday afternoon in New York. It's uh, you know, it's pretty, it's something. In, we were instructed to call out sensations we were feeling. The idea was you're seeing someone in high sensation, empathy causes you to feel things in your own body, but I didn't get it. And everyone else in the room seemed to go along with it. And I was like, this has to be a trick. Like, there's no way, like, how is everyone feeling these things in their body? Like, people would just yell out, oh, I feel tingles in my spine. I feel warmth in my chest. And, you know, later on when I worked for One Taste, I was part of the group who would say things. And I still, honestly, I look back and I'm not totally sure if I felt things or if I convinced myself I felt things or if I, or if I you know, it's like, it's one of those things where like, your subjective perception can be so easily molded because it wasn't like I was bullshitting when I was working for them, but I was going along with this thing and I really did believe I felt things, right? But now I look back, it's like, well, I mean, you know, it's one of those things. <laughs> There's a selflessness. We're acting together and it feels like you might have experienced that. It's like a it's an actual like a hive. Yeah, and, and there's, you know, because feelings are so um and actually, this is something they would even teach. Like, it's hard to put words to feelings. It's hard to remember what you feel, which is true. I think that is true. It's easier to remember words that you think than, than sensations, let's say. But then that also means it's easy to kind of manipulate what you think you feel. And the thing is, with, with feelings, because it's subjective, if you think you're feeling something, in a sense, you are feeling it, right? Because it's just if you perceive it or not. So there are a lot of examples like this where somehow they got you to feel what they wanted you to feel. You know, I think the most important thing is that whoever has had this type of experience speak about it because it's almost like unbelievable. But it is like a group experience where where it's it's almost like one body, you know. How awkward did it get awkward? Or was this now so normal to you, the overt sexuality, the discussions? But these terms that she would use, release your beast, they were quite base. And like rooted in guttural sexuality, like in almost to to release the urge and the whole sexual persona. We all have a dark or intense side sexually. And most people do, you know, have something or desires. And I thought I thought she was selling teas a little bit uh, at times. Pleasure delay, fetish introduction, um, saying it's science. A little bit of that in, in the TED talk, but the exhibition that is now not happening from what I understand. And they um, curtailed the group. It's pretty wild. And some of it's on film with your shyness. And like you said, you're, you wanted the emotional connection. Did you see things going off the rails while you were there? What experience in relation to that unleashing? I felt that, and I did think actually the Netflix documentary a bit cherry picked and maybe put some things out of context, but like the idea behind the beasts, for instance, and I think they, they did keep me saying this in the documentary. It's like, I mean, now in modern, uh, modern culture, modern millennial culture, there's the idea of being a savage, which is just being un uninhibited. It's the same thing. One Taste did take things to like a real letter level when it came to like the dark stuff, which I actually found mostly beneficial for most people like, to really be able to express your sexual desires, really be able to go into like almost extreme vulnerability. And there is a high with that in itself. Um, now, there also were, were moments where, I mean, it's kind of like one taste decided how far things could go based on what was good for them. Like if someone 
I did find that later, like maybe in the last year I was there, the second half of my time there, I did notice more and more that they might shame a certain kind of emotional expression that was counter the, the, the drives of the group, whereas they would celebrate someone else for being really out there if it was uh, in alignment with one taste. And do you think it was partly shaded by capitalism at that point instead of like the raw origins of the idea, which was to celebrate female sexuality with a delayed orgasm of 15 minutes versus um, allowing people to express themselves so much that it could turn into a male raping a female? Yeah. The, well, the thing that they had in the in the documentary about, I mean, they, they kept showing this clip. Honestly, they, I mean, they, they blurred out the faces. And I know the two people who it was, I wasn't there for the filming of that. I'm almost certain they were laughing and giggling and, and messing around. Like I, I and they, they always they always showed that clip while talking about rape, which I thought was really, uh, yeah, I thought it was bad. Um, okay, so I, I understand. So there's some things that were sensationalized in the documentary. For sure. And I do understand at the same time, they're trying to squeeze a, com- a complex story into 90 minutes. So, but I, yeah, I thought those moments weren't, weren't so, weren't so cool. With the FBI involvement, is that type of thing why they're looking into it now? Um, I don't know what the last is with the FBI. I did speak to them back in 2018. I think what they're looking into are unfair uh, working conditions, like are unsafe working conditions. And then maybe prostitution, although prostitution was never done directly. So I don't know if they have, I have no idea what what the state of the the criminal investigation is. Regarding the prostitution, I would like to ask you something about that because it's like there was an odd dynamic. So when the female, and this was still happening when you were there, it was like a group session, female on a table, master stroker, uh, usually a man or not necessarily at the table touching her. Everyone around talking, interacting, but seated. Okay, one person or multiple people at those tables, perhaps? Uh, well, everyone would be silent. I mean, okay. a, a demo was seen as like, I mean, it is a very vulnerable act. It was seen like, kind of ritualistically. That whole idea of you know, being in a turned on state was another thing that was repeated in the terminology. Um, a turned on woman would do this, a little bit of conditioning and um, almost like shaming if you're not acting like a turned on woman where you're not, you know, you need to go have more sex. I did want to say this about like the being not sure how you feel, because the whole philosophy was around feeling more like if the more you feel, the better your life is, the more you can empathize, the better you can communicate, the better your sex is, obviously. And the whole thing was about feeling more and more. So because of that, people would kind of heighten how much they felt. And then there was an identity that you're pointing to, like the turned on woman or the ignited man was the the male counterpart of that, was someone who really felt a lot and therefore they would behave in certain ways. Like one like kind of moral switch they used was, you know, someone who's really turned on doesn't feel bad when they get jealous. They still get jealous because everyone was polyamorous, right? Everyone was sleeping with, I mean, for the most part, people had multiple lovers, so that caused a lot of jealousy. But a person who like closed off because of jealousy was, it was never stated like this, like a person wouldn't be shamed for it, but it would be kind of seen as like, oh, you're not so evolved because you still get upset kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So forced polyamory really kind of like the pressure, peer pressure. Yeah, not not forced force, but like social pressure, for sure. You can control someone with coercive sexual behavior. 
And of course, it's one of the most powerful connections we have as humans. Like, how much more intimate can you get than sex? It's pretty intimate. Group that's sex forward, I think that is a group intimacy. It's a real, like, mental intimacy, too. You felt that? Yeah, I mean... uh Given that the, the norms of the community were no one, basically, you could never get shamed for just expressing what you want. Like, it, along with feeling more, like following your desire was seen as the highest good. So, yeah, it made it feel safe to really express yourself, which, of course, if you have this with this group of people and you can't speak like this with regular people in New York, obviously, you feel particularly close to this group. How do you view the power dynamic, female totalist, I would say, leadership after all you experienced? How has it shaped your ideology? I saw one of the clips where you talked about feeling like your mind is broken. And, you know, a lot of us feel like that when we leave a cult because of the regimented programming we were following. You kind of forget your own thoughts and feelings and have been on a program. You also got in debt, you know, taking on more classes than money you earned at the place. And that's pretty impactful to say that that would be encouraged. You know, that that shows a lot of the irresponsibility that's going on there. So when you left, how did that pan out eventually? What straightened you out or how did you feel for a long period of time? Uh, yeah, well, I think the thing I said in the documentary is I felt like my mind was fried. Like, uh, it was like I... I it, <laughs> My perceptions, I don't know how to say this other than a bit spiritually, it's like my perceptions had opened a lot and let a lot of like really great things in, but then also a lot of things that weren't so great. Um, and I had a really hard time basically separating the good from the bad because I did grow a lot as a person. And like you mentioned uh, a second ago, like the kind of the theme, like the matriarchal structure, like it was run by, by a woman. Uh, and it rewarded kind of feminine characteristics in people right. to the point that I think it was used kind of as a way to control people. The same thing with the empathy piece, right? Like if you're really feeling people, it's easy to, for them to change your feelings, right? And um, for me personally, I did think it was very important for me to get in touch with my feminine side, to get in touch with my feelings and stuff. But it was to the degree that I became, I think, a little bit submissive or I was more willing to accept other people's ideas, especially those who I saw as like more spiritually evolved than me, um, which I think happens in a lot of groups with power dynamics, not, not even just cults. It takes time to kind of sort it out. <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and in a way, I think I went a little bit too far in getting in touch with my feminine side to the point where I, I had to spend some time uh, rebuilding the rest of me. There's an amazing website I've discovered recently, decision-making-confidence.com. You might love this because like what you're speaking about is so nuanced. Many people haven't even looked into this. He, he talks about sublimation of one or other of a the feminine or masculine side within us, you know? Yeah, there's actually a lot of lesbian women. I mean, because obviously a female sexuality organization will attract 
a fair bit of lesbians. A lot of lesbian women tried sleeping with men for the first time in years at one taste. And at least the ones I spoke to at the time found it to be kind of a healing experience. Like they maybe they swore off men due to some trauma and they finally were able to forgive again. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know everyone's personal story, but that was a pretty common thing that happened at one taste. Are you a person with sexual trauma? Oh, well, actually, I mean, I don't know if I would call it sexual trauma. Maybe, you know, nothing happened to me as far as I know, but I did have psychogenic ED, which was kind of uh, now, now looking back, I realize it's kind of, um, it was an epidemic amongst my generation. Um, Yeah. Like, uh, and I don't, I mean, there's probably a lot of factors that cause it, um, but yeah, I just couldn't get it up, you know, and and I was healthy. Yeah. And did you, so is that cured? Oh yeah. One taste. I mean, that was one of the big selling points is that like hanging out with one taste for a few months and that problem I had for a year just went away. And it's like, well, I'll definitely important to me because Mm -hmm. I feel like she had the urge to do sexual healing originally, like no matter if it was men or women, but starting with the female orgasm, some positivity there because the idea that it's mental, I believe, is where you're headed with this, no? Well, yeah, emotional. I mean, it does come down to feeling your feelings, ultimately. And yeah, I mean, One Taste really did have, like, it's, there, there was bullshit, obviously, especially in, in, like, controlling people's lives. But the teachings were legit. And, like, I mean, you kind of have to be legit to grow as a company. I mean, they did attract a lot of celebrities and lots of people because they did help people. I mean, they really helped me, especially in the beginning. I, I was on Viagra for a bit and it just made it worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I did for a while, actually. I mean, when I started my podcast, I was a little bit more focused on men my age, like mid twenties who are interested in dating and things like that. And obviously sexual issues. Now, now that I'm older and I'm a parent, like it's not really the most interesting topic for me anymore. Um, but I used, I used to help people for, I, I was listed on psychology today for a while, specifically to help people with psychogenic sexual problems. But if you could do me one favor and explain, what is psychogenic? Uh, Psychogenic, it just means originates in the mind. Psyche and genus. If you've ever had a feeling that you didn't have control of your sexuality, gaining control of that is so powerful. And this is the success story I hear from you. Yes. Now, do you feel like the world has toxic masculinity right now? Or are you of the camp that men need to get in touch with their feelings? What's the balance here? Well, I think those two things uh, are, aren't mutually exclusive. I mean, there is always um, masculinity is just a thing, right? Like it's uh, like any kind of power is a thing that can be used uh, pro-socially or not. Um, I think it is useful for a human being to get in touch with their their feelings if they want to be with other people. But yeah, I think even on both ends, it's like, uh, you know, at least in, in, in my world, like the, the term nice guy syndrome is like a guy who's a little bit too in touch with his feelings, or at least he follows his feelings a little too much, follows others, is a little bit too caring, which is not attractive or healthy for him. For those kinds of guys, they kind of have to look at the more aggressive styles or types of masculinity to balance themselves out. I think, yeah, everyone needs to find that, that balance that's correct for them. One of the things that I noticed, uh, few people have experienced a totalist female-led cult like you, and so have I. So it's kind of unusual. Living, working, uh, having your sexuality tied up in it, having your spirituality tied up in it, because they were my spiritual mentor, all in one basket. And they even use the word master. I don't know what 
her title was, uh, Nicole, but I'll personally not be jumping into any entire belief system ever again. You experienced a totalist society. It happened to be run by females. And now, are you hesitant to take up other belief systems? I don't think I would ever let someone override what I think ever again. And in that way, it was a great education. Like, I feel like I learned two types of things in one taste. There's the stuff they taught me directly, which was great, like the stuff in classes and stuff. And even like, you know, I, I had kind of like an apprentice relationship with my mentor. We didn't call each other those, those terms, like no one was called master, but I learned a lot of things. And there's the stuff I learned kind of in spite of the experience, like basically everyone I know who's left, like they have a backbone now, like especially the people who got kind of brainwashed. They're never going to get brainwashed again. I mean, maybe it's not, that's not always true, but for the most part. Yeah, I mean, I, I still believe in the, the general ideas that intrigued me, like following your feelings is important and empathy is important. And, and, and one of the things that I still, I guess, maybe, maybe even overemphasize, because I, I do want to share like how cool <laughs> certain aspects of it was, was that like when you really learn empathy and like once he's taught people how to feel their feelings and feel other people's feelings to a very, very high degree to a point where it almost, I mean, it seemed mystical because like when you can sense what a woman wants you to do to her body before she can say it or signal it, it seems like kind of magical, but it's just normal intuition. It's cool. I mean, and that's kind of stuff I don't want to let go of. To your question, though, I, did, I do think I kind of uh, distrusted my feelings for a few years. And honestly, I'm still, try, I'm still like integrating what's the right balance between thinking and feeling. You're listening to The Frankie Files, frankiefilespodcast.com. It is a very interesting story in a business sense that it got as far as it did as off the rails at times as it seemed. Good ideas do go bad. And that's that's a sad thing. It's like, can we take the good out of this? And I hope that people hear what you're saying, which is there was some good out of this. And uh, I mean, you said something earlier, like um, she did want to help people. It's, I don't think it's like it, it started good and then it turned bad. It was like there were always good intentions. And I still think she has good intentions. She really believes she's helping people. And at the same time, she wants power. And these are not, this is kind of true for all people. Like everybody wants power and everybody wants to be helpful to some, some balance. I just think on both ends, she was a little bit more extreme. Like the, the type of personality that wants that kind of worship is kind of a unique. In the documentary, they, they, uh, they stressed how she was traumatized by her father. I don't know if that's the root of it. Um, but maybe it is. With a, a pedophile father on 13 counts or so of child molestation, got to mm -hmm. have a shadow over you a little bit. But who knows? It just seemed like it was a driving factor to attempt to heal the situation. Perhaps. But also, yeah. also, <laughs> I wasn't cool with the T-shirt idea she had. <laughs> I got raped and all I got was this. Victim story? story. Yeah. Oh, victim. That's right. Yeah. The whole victim shaming throughout stood out. And I'm not standing by her statements there, but I did think that it was it was cut in a way where, like, at least when I was in it, there was a lot of discussion about not playing the victim for your own sake. And I do, and I still think that's actually, I think that's a good move. I mean, obviously, people get harmed and they're real victims, but you, you never really move on until you're willing to drop that. Oh, Robert J. Lifton says moving from victim to survivor. 
you know, mm-hmm. it's a transition. So that if you start sharing your knowledge, you're no longer a victim. Boom. You're just done. Cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's a good way to start. And it's true. And I think um, there are a lot of things that Nicole said that were really true. And she just took it kind of to an extreme where I don't know if it was like um, for shock value or to differentiate herself or maybe just to see how far you could push things when you have power over people. If there's a point where things got out of hand, it was because of that dynamic. That hunger for power. Yeah, which we all have. I mean, I'll even say for myself, like I, I didn't rise that high in the in the hierarchy, but I was you know, I was somewhat influential in, in the in the cult community. I also have had the feel. I mean, I, of, co- of course, I wanted to help people. I, I when anytime I would bring someone in, it was with the intention of helping them. But there was also kind of like a high you get when you do help someone and they praise you. You do get to, to get someone to do something that they were always afraid to do their whole life. Like it gives you kind of this power rush, which kind of gets mixed in with helping people. And I could see how my own behavior was driven by that a lot. And I think most of the influential people in One Taste are, are driven by that largely. The idea of coaching can be super rewarding. Now, add sex in the mix and you got a turbo jet. I asked Rowan to tell us about some of the terminology used in this sex cult slash sexual wellness organization. And here's what he had to say. Killing. Uh, So killing was a thing where someone was, it was a kind of a communication technique almost where you basically shatter someone's ego. Like it was almost like an extreme version of dropping the mic on someone where like you just said the things usually because you knew enough about their intimate lives that you could basically just like stun, stun their ego where they can't like think or yeah, I mean like they're dead essentially. (laughs) Turned on woman. Yeah, it's a woman who's uh, practiced orgasmic meditation enough that she really feels a lot in her body uh, to the point where she's different than like your average woman. Ignited, you already covered that. An ignited person is like uh, fully conscious and able to feel their feelings and be conscious in the moment. And maybe even feel so much they have uh, kind of an effect on people they meet him or her. Okay, so like a light worker or an influencer or whatever, but they're sure someone with like a presence, you know. Well, see, we all have that a little, don't we? Okay, victim story. Yeah, that's the the holding on to this idea that you're that someone did something to you and you're uh, powerless, essentially. Master stroker. That was someone who had become so skilled at orgasm meditation that they were considered a master. Blow your lines clean. I'm going to go have some sex and feel better. Yeah, I haven't heard that specifically, but I, I mean, I guess, yeah, it means uh, I feel so much that you kind of cleared whatever whatever you're thinking or your, your previous emotions. Slash each other for a higher purpose. Uh, I haven't heard that one, but I assume it means, I mean, there's an, another term that she used, maybe it's on your list, called benevolent adversary, where you kind of enter into a conflict with someone where you are doing it in a way that you both grow. 
So you might be mean to each other, you might trigger each other, but you're somehow forcing each other to grow. There's a lot of game theory here, isn't there? Yeah, like that was in the context, a lot of the time in the context of like love triangles and jealousy. Uh-huh. Like two people would be sleeping with the same man or the same woman. Or usually, usually it was women, like sleeping with the same man. And then they would somehow work through various emotional things with each other. Okay. Describe your sex. It meant like describe the qualities of your sex. A lot of times, like, they would drop, they would just phrase things in a way that wasn't, the, like, you know, if I were to ask you to describe the quality of your sex, you know that what that meant, but they would just phrase it differently, which I think was, like, kind of a cultural lingo. So that's like a temperature check and see if you're you're sexually well at the time? Oh, no, it'd be, it'd be kind of like a, maybe a get-to-know-you type of question, like, kind of like a fun communication game. Like, someone might answer that poetically, like, my sex is, like honey dripping from i don't know i mean i'm not going to come up with something now but you know that kind of kind of thing yeah <laughs> okay so it's kind of like a handshake in that club uh well it's usually in in group communication games we would play games where people got to reveal uh personal details and that would be a, the type of question that someone would say okay that that confession stuff that brings people together and then mm-hmm. maybe used to get against each other later let your beast out yeah the beast is the that would be mean uh drop your inhibitions and and really express what's really inside of you even the dark stuff nice guy syndrome you mentioned that earlier yeah that's uh that was coined by dr robert glover it's uh his term for kind of like indoctrinated beta male behavior that many men of recent generations have so do you believe people should embrace their alpha male? Well, my real answer to that question is, well, I'll just say men have more to gain than lose in most contexts by, it is the more authentic way to be, let's put it that way. Like every man wants to be a dominant male, whether he admits it to himself or not. Especially because it's uh, seen as strength in society. Yeah, and it's also what women are into, and it's also what makes a man feel good inside what my body asked him to do her feelings without communicating without verbally communicating her her feelings were communicating something to get him to do something i don't know i don't know if i explained that well but uh, maybe something that'll help is like there's another term i don't know if it's on your list called bottoming um it was is borrowed from or the gay community like being a bottom is the receiving end um but bottoming was influencing someone from the receptive position, usually without having to say something. So like topping would be forcing someone to do something. Like that would be like a topping move. Yeah. Whereas bottoming would be like kind of like seductive, like making them feel really good. So they end up doing what you want. Kind of like what, but like uh, making someone feel good to do what you want, basically. Okay. It's making someone feel good and in a seductive, more passive manner. Right. them to do what you want. Essentially. Okay. Well, there is power in that. We know that the person who's the sub who has the safe word has all the power, really. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a, a known concept in, in bondage realms. Okay. The final one I wrote down, doesn't mean it's all of them, but release your orgasm. Uh, that would be like the general idea of, I mean, in that context, orgasm is like your flow of energy or your life force. And um, that, that's what that would mean. Yeah, that's the whole concept, right? And 
know it's still going on, but with restrictions. So people can look into that and do check out uh, the podcast. And please tell us where we can find you. Yeah, you can find me on any podcast app. I'm, I'm also back on YouTube. If you just search Rwando, you'll find me. Um, and all of my work is at rwando.substack.com. Uh, well, I just got back on YouTube after a couple of years. So, yeah, I, I mean, same thing I've been doing. I, 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 I love podcasting and I keep wanting to share uh, things that I think are helpful for people uh, with the world. Do you have a book in the future? Yeah, well, actually, uh, I should have mentioned this. On my Substack, I've serialized my memoir. It'll probably go into print eventually um, through traditional publishing, but right now, it's up there for my paying subscribers on my Substack. Thank you, Ruan, for being there. Everybody check out ruando.com. And it's been my pleasure to have the previous One Taste employee here telling us what really happened. Thank you, Ruan. Thanks, Frankie. Cults, coercion, and sexuality in society. These are the topics for the Frankie Files. I'm Frankie Tease, your host, and I'll continue to focus on my own family story as well as news and recovery info for those who've survived, especially the adult children of cults. New each Tuesday. See FrankieFilesPodcast.com for more.